Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by my friends and co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. It is so good to see you both. It's great to see you. Hey, guys. It's good to be seen. Let's jump right <laughs> into the podcast. So on this episode, we're going to continue the discussion of valvular heart disease, moving from the left heart to the right heart. In episode 65, we talked about the curious predilection of rheumatic heart disease for the mitral valve. Today, Tony asks, why is tricuspid valve endocarditis more common in persons who inject drugs? And you know, maybe we can start with some numbers. Is it really the case, Tony, that right-sided endocarditis more specifically, tricuspid valve endocarditis is actually more common in IV drug use. I like to often give questions back to the two of you. So before I give you some numbers from cohort studies, I'm curious, does this observation fit with what you guys have actually observed so that persons who inject drugs are more likely to have tricuspid valve endocarditis? Is that what you've seen, Hannah? That, that feels right. I think I learned the fact before I started seeing patients, right. and so it then retrofitted to <laughs> my experiences. Yeah, it, it certainly sort of has face validity for me based on my experience. I guess the other cohort of patients that I tend to see tricuspid valve endocarditis in are folks who have like pacemakers and stuff like, you know, yeah, wires right, like sitting right. in their right heart. <laughs> that makes sense. But other than that, yeah, I mean, it tends to be with the history of IV drug use. Yeah, and, that, and that's true for me too. But I, I think it's important to offer the two of you, and to offer our listeners some data. So one study from Spain examined about 1,500 episodes of infective endocarditis in persons who inject drugs. And the cohort spanned more than 15 years, from 1977 to 1993. And they found that the tricuspid valve was involved in 68% of cases, followed by the aortic in 7% and the mitral in 5%. So we'll probably come back to this, but the pulmonic valve was rarely involved, seen in just 1% of the cases. So there are many other cohort studies that similarly show that the tricuspid valve is involved more frequently in this setting when you compare those who inject drugs to those who have no history of IV drug use. And how about those who don't have any history of IV drug use? What is a typical sort of distribution for them? Yeah, so a 2009 study in the Archives of Internal Medicine looked at about 2,700, 2,800 patients with infective endocarditis and reported mitral valve involvement in 41%, aortic in 38%, tricuspid in 12%, so much, much lower, and the pulmonic again was just 1%. And then finally, a 2020 JAK study specifically compared persons who inject drugs to those who don't inject drugs. And they included about 7,600 patients. And they found that the persons who inject drugs, the tricuspid valve was involved in 56% of cases compared with just 18% in those without a history of IV drug use. Okay. So you've pretty clearly shown that there's a difference in the valvular distribution. But something that I don't quite understand is that the portal of entry for most bacteria is the venous system. So like aggressive toothbrushing on the bone marrow transplant unit or injection drug use like we're talking about. So why wouldn't right-sided endocarditis be more common than left in all causes of infective endocarditis since hypothetically all of the bacteria have direct access to those valves first? I think it's a really important question, and it's one that I didn't think to ask myself until I started looking into this topic. So in order to understand both our initial question of why tricuspid valve is more commonly involved in those who inject drugs, it's essential to first understand the pathogenesis of infective endocarditis just more generally. And in doing so, we'll cover why left-sided is more common overall. And so there are at least three steps required for infective endocarditis to occur. First, there needs to be valvular endothelial injury. 
Second, a thrombus forms at the site of this injury. And then third and finally, bacteria see this thrombus causing, not surprisingly, infective endocarditis. Okay. So three steps required for infective endocarditis to form. The first step, valvular injury, sort of fits with what we talked about during um, episode 65 uh, when we talked about rheumatic heart disease, this idea that you have to plow before you plant, I guess, right? So there has to be some damage to the valve as a first step. But you know, is there any sort of experimental support for this idea that endothelial damage is really that first step in infective endocarditis? Yeah, there is. And you know, the key observation is that vegetations rarely form on an intact endothelium. So in the 1960s and 1970s, a series of experiments were performed by Penelope Garrison, Lawrence Friedman, and David Durek. And they involved the use of polyethylene catheters. And these catheters were used as disruptors of the endothelium of the valves of rabbits. So what they did is in some of these rabbits, they would insert the catheters into the hearts, causing trauma to the valves. And then in other rabbits, they wouldn't do that. But in all of them, they would in, then inject bacteria into the blood. And what they found is only those with endothelial injury developed infective endocarditis. Okay, but with the exception of cardiology units, <laughs> most people are not routinely having their valve poked at directly with catheters. Uh, so what is the trauma for that most people causes the endothelial injury that then leads to the endocarditis? So it's probably high pressures and velocities. So in 1963, Simon Robert published a set of experiments using venturi tubes to model flow across valves. And remember that venturi tubes are shaped like an hourglass and contain an area of constriction that varies the, the flow. So Robert injected a bacterial aerosol into the airstream passing through one of these venturi tubes. And he showed that high pressure drives an infected fluid to a low pressure sink and that this creates the characteristic pattern of bacterial colony distribution in endocarditis. That is such a cool the, experiment. <laughs> it, it is. And it, the pictures are fascinating because you see this like colony formation right where there is this low-pressure sink. And so the thought is that the high-velocity and turbulence created when blood flows from a high to a low-pressure area across a narrowed orifice traumatizes and injures the endothelial surface. So we've got this sort of extremely elegant experiment by Robert from the 1960s sort of modeling what happens as fluid is flowing through these valves and demonstrating where bacteria may tend to land on valves. Does this explain why most vegetations are on the ventricular side of the aortic valve and the atrial side of the mitral valve? Yeah, it's thought to because again, these are the low pressure sinks through which blood flows from areas of high pressure. But this means that you typically have some regurgitant flow to see this injury happen. And, and most patients who have uh, bacterial endocarditis do have regurgitant flow across these valves. And similar hemodynamic relationships are seen with tricuspid valve endocarditis and infections related to coarctation of the aorta and patent ductus arteriosus. So these are all scenarios where you have blood flowing from high to low pressure areas, and that low pressure sink is where the bacteria gloms on. And do you see that this is more common or infections are more common in situations in which you have an elevated pressure gradient? Like, I guess maybe like a coarct or something like that, like you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's data showing that if you have a large VSD, for example, so a lot of blood flow, but the gradient and the turbulence isn't as high because if you have a large defect, 
you're just not going to get as much turbulent flow. So if you have a large VSD, you're not going to actually see endocarditis. But if you have a small VSD with highly turbulent flow across a narrowed orifice, you will. So you actually need to have this sort of narrowed space too. Hmm. So I wonder if this helps explain the rarity of pulmonic valve endocarditis. Yeah, I think that it does because the pressures around the pulmonic valve and the gradient across it may not be high enough to generate the turbulent flow required for this first step, this endothelial injury. There's undoubtedly probably other factors at play too. Okay. So step one is endothelial injury, which for most forms of endocarditis is more common with high pressure valves on the left side of the heart. And Tony, going back to that three-step framework that you laid out at the beginning, step two, you said, is the formation of microthrombi at the site of injury. Can you tell us more about that? I definitely can. So the second step is the formation of a thrombus consisting of platelets interwoven with strands of fibrin. And these thrombi, they develop at the sites of endothelial injury, and they're actually what the bacteria infect if someone develops infective endocarditis. That, of course, is the third step, right? The generation and the infection of the bacteria into that thrombus, right? So step one, endothelial injury. Step two, formation of thrombus. Step three, actual infection of that thrombus. Now, I think there's a good time to note that with Staph aureus, Staph aureus may be a little bit unique in its ability to cause infective endocarditis without these first two steps. It seems to be able to affect normal heart valve tissue, but most cases of infective endocarditis, even those caused by Staph aureus, you still need endothelial injury. You still need the formation of a thrombus. I love that even uh, in a somewhat cardiology ID episode, we're touching on Virchow's triad (laughs) in hematology. Um, So... If the formation of a thrombus is this key component of most cases of infectious endocarditis, if we were to treat with antithrombotic therapies, could we prevent it? This is an unsurprising question coming from the soon-to-be hemoc <laughs> fellow. And you know, we, I'll, I'll tell you, we've known about the role of endothelial injury and microthrombi in endocarditis since at least the 1930s. And remember that the first human studies of heparin were also in the 1930s. And that penicillin wasn't introduced until 1941. So there was a lot of enthusiasm for the use of heparin after the diagnosis of infective endocarditis in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Like we didn't have a lot of other therapies available. Like we didn't have penicillin, for example. Uh, But if endothelial injury and thrombus formation was felt to be sentinel, let's give heparin a try. Unfortunately, these trials were basically negative. Okay. So you said that these studies were done in patients after the diagnosis of infective endocarditis had been made. But wouldn't you want to use antithrombotics to prevent endocarditis in the first place if you were using sort of first principles for what's going on here, where the the thrombus is the problem? Yeah, it makes sense to me that the antithrombotic medications would be more effective as preventative agents, just as you've said. And you know, as you can imagine, infective endocarditis is too rare to do a prospective randomized control trial. You'd need to enroll like way too many people to see an effect size. But there are animal studies where they give antiplatelets and anticoagulants, then attempt to provoke endocarditis. So for example, a 2015 study published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases looked at a rat model of experimental infective endocarditis following prolonged low-grade bacteremia. And prophylaxis with antiplatelets like aspirin or anticoagulants like dabigatran were started two days before inoculation with strep gordonii or staph aureus. And they found that the combination of aspirin plus teclopidine 
protected 21% of rats from strep gordonii infection and 55% of rats from staph aureus infection, which I kind of found these numbers to be pretty good. But I think for our listeners, for the two of you, you know, it's important to recognize that human data is lacking. So unsurprisingly, the use of antiplatelets and or anticoagulants for the prevention um, or the treatment of infective endocarditis isn't currently recommended. Yeah. Although going back to Avi's point about how many people have pacemakers or something in place, a lot of those people are on antiplatelet. Yeah. So I, I sort of wonder if there's like a retrospective observational study to be done there that would be horribly confounded <laughs> by uh, indications for antiplatelets. But going back a second, so we established the steps that are necessary for infectious endocarditis to form. First, we need to have this pressure gradient, which then creates endothelial injury on which a thrombus forms, and then nested into that beautiful fibrinous thrombus comes an infection. So can we go back to the original question of why the tricuspid valve, specifically IV drug use? Yeah, you know, it, I would say pretty typical for this show. We ask a question and then we decide to talk about first principles <laughs> for like 15 minutes before we actually attempt to answer that question. We come up with like <laughs> several potential retrospective observational studies usually. Yeah, but you know, as you can imagine, there are surely multiple factors at play, but endothelial injury to the tricuspid valve is likely the key. And you know, particularly as you think about the pathogenesis of infective endocarditis just for the left heart. So, you know, the question then becomes what causes the injury to the tricuspid valve in the setting of IV drug use? I guess I would imagine that it somehow relates to what is being injected into the vein itself. That's the thought. So particulate matter that comes with the injected material likely leads to repeated injury to the tricuspid valve. And this is a scenario where it's being the first valve accessed probably does play a role. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of different things that are injected in the setting of IV drug use. Again, the particulate matter is in various sizes, but some of that is going to bombard that tricuspid valve. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I wonder if eventually someday we'll study it and be able to give people better advice about like cotton using and types of needles and stuff like that. But can we go back to why the right side of the heart? Like, why doesn't that also affect the left side of the heart? Since eventually the same blood with that same particular matter is going to come to the left heart. Yeah, I think this is the exact right question. But you have to remember that the particulate matter, the blood, must first pass through Avi's favorite set of paired filters. And of course, we're not talking about the kidneys. Instead, we're talking about the lungs. So the I like diam- the kidneys too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it- <laughs> Those are fighting words. I don't know. <laughs> Something tells me that um, you cause a lot of AKI in your ICU. So <laughs> We call it permissive azotemia. Yeah, exactly. Well, so for your favorite organ, the lungs, the thing to know is that the diameter of the pulmonary capillaries is about six microns. And this probably protects the aortic and mitral valve from endothelial injury induced by larger particles that are typically seen in the setting of injection. So the, some of these particles are double digits or even even larger. So they're basically trapped by the capillaries of the lung. All right, score one for the lungs. Um, that Just is one. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, so far, so far today. Yeah. Um, are there other things that play a role in why it doesn't affect the left side of the heart? I mean, there has to be. This is something that hasn't been proven, this idea of the particulate matter being filtered, but it's strongly suggested. But, you know, one other difference that it may actually relate to the organisms involved. 
So staph aureus is the most common cause of infective endocarditis in people who inject drugs. And as I noted earlier, staph aureus has a greater ability to affect normal valves. So my guess, and others have stated this as well, that probably plays a role as well. Super fascinating, Tony. Any other clinical correlates you want to share with us? Yeah, so there's at least one other condition that oddly favors the right heart valves over the left heart valves, and that's carcinoid syndrome. There are probably others, but that's the other one that always comes to mind. And what's interesting is that the left-right difference in carcinoid is even more stark. So in one study of carcinoid heart, 97% had tricuspid valve involvement uh, with just 7% mitral and 3% aortic. How about the pulmonic? Yeah, so finally we're getting into double digits, right? <laughs> it was involved in 88% of cases. And I feel like this really demonstrates well the difference in pathophysiology. Because in carcinoid syndrome, the underlying valve architecture is not disrupted. And because the initial endothelial injury isn't required for carcinoid plaque formation, it can happen on the pulmonic valve in the same way that it can happen on the tricuspid valve. But why don't we see those plaques form nearly as frequently on the left-sided heart valves, the aortic and the mitral? Yeah, so the answer comes down to the lungs. But here, what they're filtering or inactivating is serotonin. Because serotonin likely has a key pathogenic role in carcinoid syndrome, and it's inactivated by the lungs. So in fact, if you go back to the study I mentioned earlier, of the five patients with left heart involvement, four had either a patent foramen valley or lung involvement. And this allowed them to sort of bypass that lung filter and get access to that aortic and mitral valves. Wow. All right. Score two for the lungs. <laughs> we'll, we'll give the lungs Are you surprised? Come Kidneys, on. Not, on. Really, not really represented in this episode, I will say. <laughs> they don't do all the filtering. Tony, thank you so much for walking us through that. Do you have any take-home points for us? Yeah. So, so first, infective endocarditis more commonly affects high-pressure mitral aortic valves as this predisposes to endothelial injury. For persons who in inject drugs, the particulate matter that's injected probably leads to tricuspid valve injury and, and therefore a propensity for that valve being involved. And the lungs, they actually probably act as a filter of much of this particulate matter, and this provides some degree of protection to the left heart valves, the aortic and the mitral valves. All right. Well, thanks for coming along for another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits via VCU Health just for listening to this episode. And so for more information, you can visit ce.vcuhealth.curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, been the Curious Clinicians. Thank you.